Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. From the blackest corners of your mind. They call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to the first of three episodes featuring the 2019 Bram Stoker Award nominees. As you might have seen, I posted my conversation with John Palisano, Horror Writers Association president, earlier this week. He was nice enough to give us a bit of a look behind the curtain of both the Stokers and the Horror Writers Association in general. Of course, as John mentioned, with all of the chaos and uncertainty going on, StokerCon and the Bram Stoker Awards are on hiatus for the time being. And, fingers crossed, will hopefully be rescheduled once we manage to get back to some kind of normal. But that doesn't mean we can't do our part to celebrate the incredible works of short horror fiction that came out in 2019. Tonight, we'll hear two Stoker-nominated stories, the first of which comes to us from Greg Chapman. Two-time international Bram Stoker Award nominee Greg Chapman is a horror author and artist based in Queensland, Australia. Greg is the author of several novels, novellas, and short stories, including his award-nominated debut novel, Hollow House, and collections Vaudeville and Other Nightmares, and This Sublime Darkness and Other Dark Stories. He is also a horror artist, and his first graphic novel, Witch Hunts, a graphic history of the burning times, written by authors Rocky Wood and Lisa Morton, won the superior achievement in a graphic novel category at the Bram Stoker Awards in 2013. He is also the current president of the Austral-Asian Horror Writers Association. Greg lives in Rockhampton with his wife and their two daughters. In addition to his award in the graphic novel category, Greg was nominated for a Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a First Novel in 2016 for his book 
Hollow House, and this year for superior achievement in short fiction for The Book of Last Words, which we'll hear tonight. Children of the Night, join me for Greg Chapman's The Book of Last Words, first published in October 2019. They call convicts on death row the walking dead, wasted souls on the long ride to hell. But after all these years watching the worst of humanity check out on their backs with a needle in their arms, I can't help but envy them. I've walked the halls of death row for almost a year, escorting inmates to their final moments, and to me, their deaths come way too easy. But how would I know what they deserve? What does anyone deserve when their time comes? I thought I knew. The first time I noticed the strange man with the book was at the execution of spree killer Adam John Cole. The man was in the small crowd of approved onlookers. Usually, people who come to witness an inmate's execution are family members of the victims or journalists who've been cleared by the governor's office. This guy was none of those. But once the curtain into the viewing room parted, there was no mistake in the demure figure in the darkest corner of the room. At first, I felt an overwhelming desire to question the man's presence in the viewing room, but I'd always assumed the witnesses had the right to be there, or at least the permission. Regardless of my misgivings, my suspicion, I had a job to do. I kept my mouth shut and set about helping my partner Danny shackle Cole to the gurney. Cole's cockiness, sharply honed after ten years on death row, kept every one of us, prison guard, clergyman, and warden on task. Well, look at all the people who came to my farewell shindig, Cole said, like he was at a rodeo. Warden Reed stepped up to center stage and unnecessarily straightened his tie. Adam John Cole, you've been condemned by a jury of your peers to die by lethal injection, sentenced by a judge in good standing in this state. Do you have anything to say before this sentence is carried out? I glanced out into the crowd. Half a dozen faces of all creeds, colors, and ages united in sorrow, except the strange little man. Cole's voice pulled me back. I killed, I killed those people because... Cole's unshaven throat bobbed as he swallowed. They all embraced their guilt in the end. I prayed he didn't piss or shit on the floor. He took a deep breath and continued. I just needed another fix, you know. It was the drugs. Cole turned to look at me, as if for vindication, and I turned my gaze back to the crowd. I preferred to look at people crying than a last-minute plea for mercy. I noticed the strange man writing very carefully in a large, leather-bound book. I didn't hear the warden call my name. Officer Holder. I froze and looked at the warden, whose fuzzy eyebrows were knotted in consternation. Danny flashed me the same grizzled look. Back on track. I helped Danny turn the gurney around so the crowd could see Cole's profile. The injection team pounced like vultures and inserted the IVs in Cole's arm. Cole trembled, his brow slick with sweat. The reverend stepped in and said his prayer, but I knew deep down he hoped the multiple murderer burned in hell. As the concoction ran up the IV tube to Cole's arm and invaded his blood, I remember my friend Alex being blown to bits by a roadside bomb in Kandahar and how I almost joined him. Once Cole had closed his eyes for the last time, I looked back to the crowd. The strange man was gone. After all was said and done, the crowd dispersed, but I never saw the old man leave. Later in the debrief, I was tempted to discuss him with the warden, but the warden had no intention of listening to me. What the hell happened out there, Holder? He said, removing his clip-on tie now that the formalities were done. Sorry, boss, I lost my focus was all I could say. The warden went to sit behind his desk. You made me look like a damn fool in front of all those people, Holder. Those families came here to see justice done, not a goddamn circus. I nodded, silently knowing the warden could make a fool of himself all on his own. 
Danny, who was standing near the door in eagerness to get back to the row, let out a sigh, his belly swelling like a drum. Sir, it was just a small lapse in judgment on Holder's part. It won't happen again. The warden studied me beneath those ridiculous eyebrows. I could tell he was thinking he shouldn't have hired a veteran to be a guard in his prison. Well, I don't want that sort of mishap during one of my executions to occur again. We got another in just two days, and not just anyone. Leon Porter Johnson. He pointed to me. You understand, Holder? Yes, sir. I left the office agreeing with the warden, and I quickly learned Danny was starting to get in the same frame of mind. He whirled on me as soon as he closed the warden's door. I'm getting tired of covering for you, Holder. You need to get some focus. We're surrounded by killers in here, and I don't want to end up with a shiv in my back. Shivs were nothing compared to mortar attacks, machine gun fire, miscalculated drone strikes, or roadside bombs. Death Row was a walk in the park compared to a stroll across miles of Afghani desert. Still, I humored him. Danny was a good enough guy, and I needed this job. Hey, I'm sorry, I'll get back in line, I said. The subject of the odd man never passed my lips for the next two days. I got back into the work, walking the row, escorting prisoners to cells, and doing run-throughs with Danny in preparation for Leon Johnson's execution. Leon Johnson was the main attraction for the year, but to me he was just another con. Tall but wiry, he didn't look like much, but I guess there was something about his eyes. Johnson kidnapped and butchered seven young women before he was caught in an undercover FBI sting. They found seven severed heads in a chest freezer in his apartment. The media reported he used to sit with them while he watched television. During his trial, Johnson's gaze managed to put the jurors on edge, with many of them requesting to be dismissed. After a short postponement, a new jury found him guilty of all seven killings in less than two hours. The governor, keen for re-election, put a rush on Johnson's execution, and many of the other inmates were more than happy to oblige. The day before his scheduled execution, Danny and I escorted Johnson to his holding cell and questioned him about his last meal and other special requirements. The son of a bitch seemed to take his impending death in stride. Mint chocolate chip ice cream, he said, running his tongue across his bottom lip. Danny wrote it down while I stared at the freak. Certainly wouldn't last a day in the desert. That's what he deserved. That's it, I said. I felt Danny elbow me. Johnson's eyes flicked my way. I have simple taste. I bet. That's enough, Holder. Johnson smiled at me. Holder, you're the veteran, aren't you? The soldier. What of it? I'm told you survived a roadside bomb, but your friend didn't. I took a step, but Danny gripped my arm tight. You shut your mouth, Johnson, Danny said. The serial killer looked back to me. He hadn't stopped smiling. I only wanted to know what Holder's last meal would be, that's all. Danny dragged me out of there before I could drive my fist into Johnson's teeth. Normally I hated execution days, but after that conversation I couldn't wait for tomorrow, and I was tempted to tackle the head of the injection team to the ground and stab the needle into Johnson's arm myself. That night, I got back into the habit of staring at my gun way too long and dreamed about Alex. We were on patrol. The desert was the color of bare flesh. Children played with their dogs amongst the rubble. Alex and I held a conversation without looking at each other. Our eyes had to be locked on everyone and everything. Anyone could be a suicide bomber. It was almost as if we were already dead and it was only a matter of when. My girl hasn't written in four weeks, Alex said. So? I think she's had enough of me not being there. Maybe she's got her hands full with your kids. Yeah, maybe. I could hear the self-doubt in his voice. It was hard not to feel helpless in a place like this. I tried to talk sense into him as I watched a tall, thin Afghani man walk toward us. Look, man, you gotta stop worrying about it. She's already written you a letter. Just hasn't gotten through to you yet. Right. The Afghani walked on by and we both took a breath. She loves you, man. You're just being paranoid. What if I'm not? At that moment, I wanted to turn and slap him, but the ground suddenly opened up beneath us. Dust and rock sprayed up in my face. My ears squealed. Then there was a rush of pain and long, hard burn. The wind was knocked out of me and all I could feel was air. When I finally hit the ground and opened my eyes, everything was painted red. I crawled through the blood-caked dirt to Alex. His legs were gone, and his guts were looped around his head like sleeping snakes. He took my hand and said something to me, his final words. 
but I can't remember them. I woke screaming to find Danny standing over me. Hold her, wake up! It took me a moment to steel myself and get my bearings and realize I was on the row in the officer's quarters where officers on duty have to spend the night before a scheduled execution. I sat up and pulled the sweat-soaked sheets off my chest. You're howling in your sleep, Danny said. Sorry. Yeah, well, forget it. It's time to get up and get ready. It took me ten minutes to shower, shave, and put on my uniform. I stared at myself in the mirror for some time and saw that I was the spitting image of someone who had survived an explosion, someone who hadn't slept a full night in more than a year. But I knew the adrenaline burst from the dream and the impending execution would keep me going all day. After a quick breakfast, Danny and I and the three other officers on duty were called to the warden's office. He wore his best press suit and a serious gaze. Beneath all of that so-called authority was a man who'd never gotten close enough to a single inmate in his entire career. Someone who was only interested in getting close to a news camera. Now you should all know how important today is, the warden said. This is Leon Johnson, one of the most notorious mass killers the state has ever seen. The community is expecting his execution to be swift and just. There are going to be a lot of people out there on the other side of that glass. The mayor, reporters, victims, families, and they don't want to see any mistakes. The warden looked at me for emphasis, but I ignored him. Instead, realizing that I'd forgotten something. A strange man at Cole's execution. Would he make an appearance, I wondered. Am I boarding you, Holder? I looked up to see every eye in the room on me. Uh, no, sir. Well, I damn well hope not. I don't want any screw-ups today from anyone, you got that? Johnson's execution was scheduled for 2 p.m. His last meal was to be served at noon. Danny and I were the ones to bring it to him. Why someone who murdered seven young women deserved a bowl of Ben and Jerry's mint chocolate ice cream was beyond me. The son of a bitch should have been given a bowl of freshly laid shit as far as I was concerned. I presented the plastic bowl of ice cream and matching spoon to Johnson in his holding cell at 12.02 p.m. But at first he seemed disinterested in his final meal. His attention rested solely with me. His knowing smile a taunt. I wasn't going to humor him in the slightest. As requested, one bowl of mint chocolate chip ice cream, I said. Would you like some, Officer Holder? I bit my tongue and took a step back. Danny stood behind me at the door. Johnson just kept on smiling. It looks delicious, he said, eventually picking up the spoon to taste it. He spoke as he ate the green-colored ice cream swirling around inside his mouth. People who ate with their mouths open really got on my nerves. Mmm, it's absolutely divine. He took another scoop and kept his eye on me the entire time. I couldn't wait until this guy's heart stopped. I felt Danny tug on my sleeve as a cue to leave, and we locked Johnson in with his final meal. We stood guard outside listening as he savored every morsel. As the minutes ticked by into hours, Johnson started whistling an unidentifiable tune. How could someone about to face their death be so calm about it? At 1 p.m., the warden arrived and spoke to Johnson to see if he was being treated fairly or needed to speak with the reverend or any next of kin. I've always received the finest of hospitality here, warden, sir, Johnson said. As for family, both my parents died a long time ago when I was the only child. The warden nodded. Do you need to speak with the reverend? Reverend Doherty stood in the doorway, not too close and not too far. His knuckles clutched around his Bible, shone white with exertion. When the condemned serial murderer looked his way, the knuckles shone even brighter. Perhaps later. 1.30 p.m. and it was time to move Johnson from his holding cell to the chamber. Outside, I could hear the sound of cars pulling in and people talking. Some voices were raised with the group calling for Johnson's swift death. They only had to wait another 30 minutes. The procedure meant we were no longer allowed to talk to Johnson, but that didn't mean he had to follow the rules. As we paraded him down death row, past all the other inmates, who declared him a dead man walking, he started whistling again. Silently, I prayed the bastard would fall to pieces inside the chamber, that he'd scream and piss and shit as he realized he was about to become the victim. Some of the inmates told him he was going to get what he deserved, that the girls he mutilated were going to get the revenge they deserved. Harsh words coming from fellow killers. Hard to believe that some of them wouldn't stoop as low as Johnson. All Johnson did was smile. The smile of a man who hadn't a care in the world. The hall seemed to stretch on forever. 
and I was reminded of how there were no streets in the desert, only dust with mud houses scattered over the surface like headstones. There wasn't one speck of dust on death row, but way too many stains of depravity. The door to the chamber swelled into view and another guard emerged. Rudy, I think his name was. He halted our procession to attach the harnesses around Johnson's wrist. These harnesses would allow us to strap him to the gurney. Johnson gave Rudy a smile. And how are you today, sir? Rudy didn't even flinch. He tightened the harnesses and stepped aside to allow us to walk through the chamber door. The chamber was as silent as a church at midnight, so our shoes echoed inside the space. Through the glass, which was covered by a black curtain, I could hear the hum of human voices. The anxious anticipation of pre-show conversation, but laced with sadness. For the families of the victims, an execution was like enduring the funerals of their loved ones all over again. The injection team were already in the room, checking the intravenous tubes and bags of drugs that would send Johnson to hell. They were a well-honed machine. Professionals who had only regard for the procedure rather than the person. How many veins had they punctured? How many hearts had they stopped? I had seen only three lives taken in my time at the prison, but so many more so far away. Johnson shuffled to the side of the gurney and offered the new faces a smile, but his tongue was silent this time. Perhaps the inevitability of death was finally getting to him. Two of the other guards took hold of Johnson's shackles and made him sit on the gurney and lie down. The murderer lay back calmly, keeping any emotions in check. He was simply along for the ride. The wrist harnesses were chained to the gurney. Johnson wasn't going anywhere. He let out a slight grunt of discomfort. A bit of pleasure at my pain, he said to one of the guards. He was ignored. I would have said something, but the warden entered the room. He had an even sharper-looking suit on today. How we looking? He asked one of the injection team. We're good to go. No time like the present, Johnson added. The curtain slid backward to reveal a room full of people. In the front row, a dozen witnesses stared at Johnson, who was splayed out for all to see. Behind the row was the chief of police, the mayor, and a score of reporters. In the back right corner, somehow obscured in the shadows, was the odd man. I felt the overwhelming urge to speak, to warn everyone, but what could I have said? I wasn't sure anyone else could see him, but he could see me. In fact, he stared me down, his eyes resolute. The warden took the stage before I could do anything. Leon Porter Johnson, you have been condemned to die by a jury of your peers by the lethal injection, sentenced by a judge in good standing in this state. Do you have anything to say before this sentence is carried out? Johnson turned his head to face the crowd. He locked eyes with everyone and I knew he was savoring their hatred of him. Even behind bars and at the point of death, he wanted power over all who were present. I looked to the odd man, who to my surprise had his book closed. No, I have nothing to say, Johnson replied. Let the sentence be carried out, the warden said. The warden gave the nod and the injection team moved in, sliding the inch-long needles into Johnson's arms. In minutes he would be no more. Time seemed to stand still for a moment, and my heart pounded inside me. I didn't care about Johnson anymore, and instead I gazed at the strange man, waiting for something to happen. Then Johnson's voice pulled me back. Wait. Everyone froze. The warden stumbled over his next words. You have something you wish to say? Johnson blinked. Yes. Is the reverend here? The reverend had been with us the whole time, and with much reluctance he stepped toward the condemned man. Reverend? Johnson's voice was barely a whisper. I wish to confess my sins. I quickly looked back to the strange man who now had his book open and pen poised. Yes, my son, the reverend said, leaning in. It all happened so fast. The reverend's scream shattered the solemnity, but it was the sight of his blood which spread the screams like a plague. Guard stepped in to pull Johnson's jaw from the reverend's throat, but the damage was already done. The warden tried to maintain order as the reverend fell, blood gushing over his white collar. Johnson writhed in ecstasy against the guards, a chunk of the reverend's neck dangling from his lips. On the other side of the glass, panic forced the witnesses to flee, but my legs had turned to stone. Inside the chamber, my colleagues piled on top of Johnson in a desperate bid to contain his mania. Behind the fracas, I saw him the strange man with the book. In the back of my mind, I heard the roadside bomb again and it snapped me back into the moment. I ran across the room to the man and grabbed at his book, a page tearing free in my grip. 
Then he was gone, like a switch had turned him off. I shook the impossibility off and moved to press the button to administer the life-taking serum. The guards were left speechless by Johnson's sudden lack of struggling. On the floor beside the gurney, the warden, his suit slathered in blood, lay the corpse of the reverend. The execution was over, but two men had lost their lives, and I slipped the torn page in my pocket. In the hours that followed, every staff member who had been in the chamber was interviewed about the Leon Johnson incident. As I sat outside his office waiting my turn, the warden screamed that heads would roll, that guards would be fired, and that the FBI would launch an investigation. Some of the guards threw threats back that they would resign or go to the board of prisons about the stress the incident had caused. All I could think about as I sat with my colleagues was the man with the book. How had he gotten inside the room? How did he know it was going to happen? The answers were on the piece of paper which seemed to burn a hole in my pocket. I was desperate to look at it, but I dared not move. The look on the man's face told me he knew everything that had occurred in that chamber and more. I contemplated telling the warden when he called me in, but I knew it would bring more heat down on me. Surely the warden knew by the process of elimination that I had been the one to push the switch. If the other guards hadn't mentioned it, then the video surveillance would surely show it. I was about to lose my job and possibly my freedom because of something I thought I'd seen. Defiantly, I stood and slipped my hand into my pocket. Danny and the other guards raised their heads to flash me looks of contempt. Any camaraderie I had with Danny was now over. He wouldn't have my back this time. The paper crinkled between my fingers. What did it matter if I walked away now, if only just to satisfy my curiosity? My heels scuffed the polished floor as I stepped to one of the windows. Through the mesh and steel bars, I could see a media horde of television cameras. The botched execution of Leon Porter Johnson was going to make headlines around the nation. They had it wrong. The story should have been about how Johnson took one last victim with him before he was put down. Slowly, I slipped the paper from my pocket, taking great care not to let anyone else see what I was doing. I looked down at the torn piece of evidence and gasped. The words were golden, swirling in great loops across the page written with the steady hand and the finest pen. Calligraphy was the word that came to mind. Beautiful calligraphy. I was so hypnotized by the way the words had been scripted that it took me several moments to understand the phrases they made. Tell her I love her. I'm sorry for hating you. I killed a man. Forgive me. It was the drugs. I've wasted my life. They were the last words of the departing. Goodbyes, heartfelt and heart-wrenching. Presented like the word of God. I tilted the page in my trembling hands and watched the fading light of day dance across its surface. A very careful hand had immortalized the final words of every dying person in the book, and it terrified me. Officer Holder. I turned to the voice and scrunched the page in my fist to conceal it, but it wasn't the warden calling to me. The strange man stood in the center of the hallway between my colleagues, clutching the leather-bound book to his chest. None of the other guards seemed to notice him, or even move. Outside, the media crews were frozen, along with the setting sun. The calligrapher stepped toward me. He was at least two feet shorter than me, dressed in a brown plaid suit. His face was a road map of the ages, but his eyes saw everything. I held out my fist to him. I'm sorry I damaged your book, I said. I opened my fist and the crumpled paper bloomed slowly in my palm. The old man reached up, took the paper and opened his book to reinsert the missing page. The page mended before my eyes, the terror gone, and every crinkle smoothed in an instant. The gilded script pulsed in satisfaction to be whole again. The calligrapher closed the book and turned to leave. I wasn't meant to see you, was I? The old man stopped and shook his head carefully. I wanted to walk around and look at his face, but only my voice was free to move. So you write down the last words people are going to say, is that it? He nodded. I swallowed hard and licked my lips. I didn't want to know what Leon Johnson had said to the Reverend before he killed him. That wasn't important. Do you, I began, in your book, do you have Alex Cavill's last words in there? The old man nodded again. I moved to ask him if I could read my friend's message, but he was already turning around. The book opened on its own, flipping back hundreds of pages with a sound like bird's wings. I stepped to the old man and read the intricate golden worlds of Alex's epitaph. Don't you die on me, Holder. You live. The book closed and time returned to the hallway. I stood there like a fool, tears streaming down my cheeks. Officer Holder? The warden stood impatiently at his door. 
I walked toward him, ready to embrace my fate. That was Greg Chapman's The Book of Last Words, as read by J.K. Shepler. J.K. Shepler was born in Texas and raised in Northern California, among the rolling hills of the Coast Range and the oaks of the Gold Country. He returned to Texas for secondary and post-secondary education. He attended the University of Houston, and someone decided to give him a Bachelor of Science degree with highest honors in anthropology. He was hyped to pursue a master's degree in experimental archaeology at Exeter, but decided to retire, thus sparing the British from his accents. He is a two-stripe brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu under Tony Torres Aponte, and haunts various local museums where he sometimes contributes to historical exhibitions or simply loiters. He surfs, throws knives, and scratches out some visual art. He is slated to finish some creative projects sometime in this decade, including illustrating a children's book, and if he ever wakes up, a bunch of other stuff. He sometimes sells fine woolen scarves and old ties, and somewhere, people buy his t-shirt designs and photographs. He, <clears throat> rarely, pens brief movie reviews, which are written in some sort of bizarre dialect at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Mr. Shepler has opened for major touring acts in various bands, produced music videos, acted, and has been a general pain in the backside. He is fortunate to be the son of artist-educator parents, and he gives thanks. His parents gave him love and taught him to love learning and to be like the warriors and renaissance men and women of old, artistic, creative, thoughtful, honorable, capable, and well-armed. Thank you, JK. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Our second Stoker-nominated story comes from Jessica Landry. From the day she was born, Bram Stoker Award winner Jess Landry has always been attracted to the darker things in life. Her fondest childhood memories include getting nightmares from the Goosebumps books, watching the hilarious House of Frightenstein, and reiterating to her parents 
that there was absolutely nothing wrong with her mental state. Since then, Jess's fiction has appeared in several anthologies, including Tales of the Lost, Twice Told, a collection of doubles, Monsters of Any Kind, Where Nightmares Come From, Lost Highways, Dark Fiction from the Road, and Fantastic Tales of Terror, among others. Her debut screenplay, My Only Sunshine, a coming-of-age horror film set against the harsh prairie winter, has been called a sharp and precise slow-burn horror story by The Blacklist. Jess has also written several other screenplays, including two Lifetime movies set to air in late 2020. She is a member of the Winnipeg Film Group and On Screen Manitoba, and currently sits on the Board of Trustees of the Horror Writers Association. You can visit her online at jesslandry.com, though your best bet at finding her is on Facebook, where she often posts cat gifts and references Jurassic Park way too much. Listen with me, children of the night, to Jess Landry's Stoker-nominated Bury Me in Tar and Twine, first published in Tales of the Lost, December 2019. When Miyako came home from school on Tuesday, the walls were bare. The framed photos that had once lined the hallway, not necessarily to show off family, but rather as a way to hide the peeling wallpaper and cracks in the plaster, had vanished. Ghostly dust outlines, the only trace that they had ever existed. Miyako stood in the hallway, gripping onto the straps of her backpack, eyes scanning the empty spaces. One spot in particular, large and rectangular, caught her attention. She could see the frame in her mind, golden and gaudy, and purchased two years ago from a garage sale. But the photo itself refused to materialize. None of them did. The basement door creaked, snapping Miyako's attention away from the wall. Her mother emerged from the darkness, a petite woman in white, who stepped as lightly as she looked. You're home early, her mother said, clicking the door shut behind her. It's five o'clock, Mama. Miyako replied as her mother passed by without so much as a glance. School was over an hour ago. You were supposed to pick me up. The woman trailed off into the kitchen, leaving Miyako to follow her. What was that? Her mother said as Miyako stepped through the archway. You said you'd pick me up from school today, Miyako repeated. You said it wouldn't happen again. Miyako watched as her mother shuffled about the room, opening every cabinet door and every drawer. Finally, she stumbled upon a scuffed-up metal pot, filled it with water, then set it on the stovetop without turning on the element. She turned to Miyako. Come a boko for supper? Sit, sit. Let me make you some rice. Miyako sighed, slipping off her backpack and taking a seat at the table. Her mother went to work, preparing the dishes. Miyako noticed her mother's back thin shoulders covered by a white sweater, bones protruding when she reached above or grabbed something from down below. The woman hadn't always been so frail. Miyako remembered a time when her mother had seemed like the strongest person in the world, that falling into her arms had been the safest place, one that smelled of lavender and freshly washed linens. Now, in the fleeting moments when her mother did embrace her, Miyako felt an emptiness behind it as though her mother did it out of necessity and not love. The lavender was gone. The fresh linens, too. There was simply nothing. Miyako turned her head to the hallway, pushing her black hair behind her ears. One edge of a missing frame peeked out from behind the door frame. What happened to all the photos? Which photos? Her mother replied, not missing a beat. The ones in the hallway? They're all gone. Oh, I put them in the basement. Why? Her mother shuffled over, a steaming plate of rice in her hands. She set the dish down in front of Miyako, handing her some chopsticks. Eat now. Go on. 
Though she wasn't hungry, Miyako did as she was told. She had learned long ago never to disagree with her mother. The scars across her knuckles served as a constant reminder. Miyako pecked away at her meal as her mother sat down and looked out the patio doors to the backyard filled with overgrown grass and dead flowers and planks of wood coming loose on the deck. The woman let out a soft sigh, her thoughts lost in the summer day. Mama? Miyako asked between bites. Hmm. Miyako hesitated, taking a moment to find the right words. When are we going to talk about it? Her mother's face changed then, her airy demeanor turning stiff. She glared at Miyako. Miyako recoiled in her chair. I told you to forget. You promised that you would. Now eat your dinner, her mother said as she stood up and left the kitchen. Miyako first noticed the tar Tuesday night. She sat at the wobbly desk in her room, the one her mother had gotten from an estate sale. The only sound was that of her number two pencil scratching her data analysis and probability math answers against the paper. The tip snapped as she finished the second-to-last question, giving her a second to rest. There's no time to get lost in the clouds, she heard her mother's voice echo in her mind. Stay down here and do your work. Her gaze shifted outside, past her bedroom window, to the empty street beyond. Suburbia, through and through. Houses lined every square inch of available land as far as the eye could see. Blocks of cookie-cutter houses, the ones with garages in the front and swimming pools in the back. Miyako remembered when they'd first moved in. How the house had seemed so big. How every room felt like its own planet. She'd immediately chosen her room, with its windows to the outside world, so she could keep a close eye on the neighborhood. Her mother had chosen the room across from her, the one with the large closet and ensuite bathroom. There was one more room in the basement, but Miyako stayed away from it. She'd only been down there a handful of times since they'd moved in, usually when her mother asked her to go fetch something from the freezer. One particular time, as Miyako moved across the cold tile floor to get a frozen fish for dinner, she'd heard a noise coming from that room. Letting her curiosity get the best of her, Miyako tiptoed to the door, pressing her ear up against the hollow wood, the faint scent of lilacs tickling her nose. The sounds on the other side were muffled, but there was no mistaking what it was. Crying. And not a light sniffle, either. Miyako hadn't been down there since. Across the road, her neighbor's blinds wide open, a rarity in the high fences and blackout blinds land of suburbia, giving Miyako the chance to see inside. A little girl sat on the couch, her face awash in the glow from the TV. She looked about the same age as Miyako, maybe eleven or twelve, though it was hard to tell from the distance. An older girl plopped herself on the couch next to the younger sister, a bowl of snacks in her hand. Together... They ate and laughed and talked. Sisters. They had to be sisters. Something brushed against the back of Miyako's neck then. She startled, though there was no one else in the room, bumping her desk and knocking the pencil clean off. It clacked against the floor and rolled under the bed. Shit, she said, a little louder than anticipated. She slapped a hand over her mouth and stared at the door sure that her mother's ears had tingled at the sound of her youngest daughter cursing. She was sure she'd burst through at any moment to give Miyako a wrapping across her knuckles or a swat across the top of her head. But her mother did not come. Feeling like she'd just dodged a bullet, Miyako went over to her bed, got down on all fours, and lifted her frilly bedskirt. It was much too dark to see anything underneath, so she grabbed her old cell phone from the desk and turned the flashlight on. A couple of unwashed shirts from God knows when lit up, along with a handful of candy wrappers that she'd shoved in between her mattress and box spring to hide from her mother. Just out of reach, the pencil. It had come to a stop against something black that glistened under her phone's light. Miyako tossed her phone onto her bed and grabbed her flaking gold bed frame from underneath, yanking it away from the wall, the metal wheels creaking in protest across the laminate floor. The pencil had rolled into a small, perfectly round black puddle, no bigger than a spilled glass of water. 
sticking out from the puddle, like a stone wedged in the earth, was half a black patent shoe. The back heel and inside markings of a woman's size nine, the only visible parts. At first, Miyako was sure the shoe had melted, or it had been cut in half. If it were a full shoe, then it would be going straight through the floorboards. Miyako grabbed her phone once more, sure that her eyes needed adjusting. She kneeled down at a fair distance, shining the light at every angle she could, trying to get a sense of it all. But there was no sense to make of it. A perfectly round black puddle had formed under her bed and was coughing up a shoe too big for her own feet. And it had her only pencil. Slowly, she inched her hand forward, cautious and steady. She managed to get the tips of two fingers and her thumb around the edge of the pencil that wasn't touching whatever it was. With a good enough grip, she tried to pull it out, but neither the pencil nor the puddle budged. Miyako moved a little closer, the faint scent of lilacs rising as she did. She managed to get an extra fingertip around the hexagonal edges, more certain now that her grip was as tight as it could go. Propping herself into a squat, Miyako pulled on the pencil once more. It shifted between her fingers. With all her might, she pulled and pulled and pulled, until the wood splintered and cracked, sending her tumbling to the floor with half a pencil in her hand. She sat up, out of breath, just in time to see the other half sink into the puddle. When Miyako came home from school on Wednesday, her mother was still in her room. Miyako knocked lightly on her door, the taps reverberating through the hollow wood. When no answer came, she opened the door as quietly as she could, giving herself just enough of a crack to peek inside. The blackout curtains had shifted so that small blades of daylight found their way inside. Miyako could make out her mother's shape nestled under the covers, her breath short and shallow, one side of her seeming to be more emerged in darkness than the other. Her mother rustled from under the covers, releasing a muffled cry that reminded Miyako of a kitten, one blind and scared and looking for its own mother. A rush of sweetness hit Miyako's nose as she closed the door, a warm, flowery scent, both distant and familiar. It lingered for a moment as she stood there breathing it in. She felt it surround her, the warm air, wrapping itself around her like a soft blanket on a cold winter's day. It beckoned her, soothed her, enticed her to turn her head. So she listened. The basement door was ajar. Miyako stood frozen in the hallway. From somewhere in the shadows, Miyako saw movement. Without a thought in her head, she sprang into a run, charging full speed at the door, hands out, eyes squinting. She slammed against it, hard, throwing the whole of her ninety-eight pounds against it with her shoulder. The door shuddered, clicking shut. Miyako stayed with her back pressed against it, exerting the last of what little strength she had. Nothing's down there, she told herself. Get your head out of the clouds. She lingered for what felt like hours, ears perked for the creak of the stairs as someone walked up them, or the rattle of the doorknob turning. Took everything inside her to let go after none of these things happened though she half expected the door to swing open the second she removed her weight, the darkness behind it waiting to devour her. But it didn't. As she stepped away, a muffled cry like that of a kitten's rang out from somewhere in the darkness, too far for her to hear. That night, Miyako made herself some macaroni and cheese, watched an episode of Pretty Little Liars, even though she wasn't allowed, and spent most of the night looking back at the basement door. She had forgotten all about the puddle until later in the evening when she stepped into her bedroom. Miyako had shoved her bed back over it the night before, opting to sleep on the couch, hopeful that it would get rid of itself, maybe even sink back through the floorboards to wherever it had come from. Now, it spilled out from under the bed. It had risen enough to touch her bed skirt, soaking its essence into the fabric so that the edges were stained black. The bottom of her golden bed frame had disappeared completely, the creaky wheels lost in the mass. But it didn't spill over. The edges of the puddle sat at least an inch upright. 
The tar seemed to be containing itself. Small, black tendrils wrapped themselves around the bedposts. Some flowered off from the post, forming a bridge to the side of her nightstand. Miyako kneeled down for a closer look, placing a hand on the floor to steady herself. It looked as though the tar had eaten through the outside of the nightstand and was now slowly devouring what lay inside. The spiky offshoots had slithered over an issue of Seventeen magazine that she'd hidden from her mother, and some Nancy Drew books. It was only then that Miyako noticed that the tar had engulfed part of her hand. She screamed. Pulling her hand back as quickly as she could, she heard pounding in her chest, scrambling up. She ran for the bathroom. Miyako cranked the hot water tap as far as it could go, dousing her clenched fist into the cold water, waiting for the temperature to rise. She grimaced through the pain as the water turned scalding, staining her pale skin different shades of red. When it became too much, she pulled her shaking fist out, hesitant to unfurl her fingers and see the damage done but her hand was clean. She looked it over, side to side, searching every pore, every crevice, every millimeter of skin. Nothing. Miyako plopped down on the closed toilet seat lid, throwing her head back against the mirror that traveled the length of the wall. The ceiling was stained with pockets of mold, some of the paint flaking from the moisture. Her mother often blamed her love of long, hot showers for the state of the bathroom but Miyako savored having that time to herself, where she didn't have to talk to anyone, where she didn't have to think about everything that had happened. Her eyes found a framed painting hanging on the wall, one of a purple carnation she had painted at summer camp a few years ago. Her mother had long admired the painting when she'd brought it home, asking what it was supposed to be. It's a flower, Mama, she'd said. Can't you see it? Her mother had nodded and hung it in the bathroom for once using art as art and not as a prop to hide a nick in the wall. And in the bathroom is where it had remained since. But Miyako studied the wall. She noticed a small nail sticking out near her painting, one small yet sturdy enough to hold up a similar frame. Miyako was certain she'd only painted one. She could barely keep her eyes open at school Thursday afternoon. Miyako had spent the night tossing and turning on the couch her mind too wired to sleep, her body in constant fear that the tar had been absorbed into her system. Somehow she'd gotten herself up that morning, conducting a thorough exam of her hand that ultimately came up empty. She then found herself at her mother's door, contemplating if she should tell her what was happening. Miyako stopped herself before knocking, hearing light snores resonating from the other side. She'd decided to tell her mother that evening when she'd come home from school. Best to let her rest. Miyako sat in math class, head propped up by her hand, trying to take in the lesson on data analysis and probability. Let's open up your exercise books and flip to page 44, yeah? Her teacher, Miss Johnson, said. But sleep was stronger than the spoken word, and Miyako found her eyes growing too heavy to fight. She jerked in her seat, disturbing the rest of the class. You good, Miss Shimizu? Ms. Johnson asked. Yes, sorry. The other kid sneered at her. Good. Page 44. Miyako nodded, searching her desk for the textbook while Ms. Johnson went back to the lesson. Backpack, she thought. You did this as homework the other night. Miyako shifted in her seat, reaching her hand around to grab her backpack from behind her chair. As she pulled the textbook from her bag, she caught a glimpse of something black on her hand. The book fell to the floor with a thud. Everyone turned to stare at her. Again, Miss Shimizu? Her teacher's words seemed as though they were coming from the other room. Slowly, deliberately, Miyako turned her hand over. Her palm was black. The tendrils ran underneath her skin like veins. They traced her fingertips, culminating in her palm, then trailed down her wrists like worms digging through the soft earth. Miss Shimizu? her teacher said again, concern in her voice. Miyako jumped from her seat, bumping into the classmate beside her. Watch it! The girl hissed, pushing against her. Miyako snapped out of her trance, looking down at the girl. She looked back at her with a look of disgust. Jesus, the girl said. 
What's on your face? Mom! Miyako screamed as she ran into the house. Mom! Her legs couldn't carry her fast enough to her mother's door, every step heavier than the last. She'd ran all the way from school, leaving her teacher calling out to her as she dashed down the hallway, closing her eyes as she passed by any reflective surfaces. She couldn't look at her face. She already knew what was there. Miyako threw open the door without so much of a knock, ready to deal with the consequences of disturbing her mother. At first glance, everything seemed as it had been, blackout blinds shut with slivers of light piercing through. But that was not the case. The tar had devoured the room. Large tendrils shot up from the floor to the ceiling, veining out across every surface. It covered the windows, slithering over top, allowing only hints of light through. The floor pulsated, consumed by new-forming tendrils looking for something to latch onto, like tiny little spider legs scurrying away. And in the middle of the room, her mother, in bed, the little spider legs cocooning her, swarming her, eating her alive. Only her face was visible, her expression calm and at peace, as though she were wrapped in the arms of a loved one. Mama! Miyako felt a sudden pull on her pant leg. When she looked down, the tar had wrapped itself around her ankles. She pulled back, snapping the legs off of her in the process, stumbling into the hallway. The tar spilled out of her mother's room at a breakneck pace, barely giving Miyako enough time to move away. The tendrils found the walls and the ceiling, greedily scaling whatever it could grasp. It flooded the carpet turning it into a sea of black. It kept its distance from Miyako, but swayed her back, back to the one door it left untouched, back into the basement. Miyako had never liked the basement. Behind her, the tendrils had slowed, letting Miyako make her way down the old stairs, past the freezer, to the door, to where she was wanted, where she needed to be. The sobbing grew louder with every step, the same sickly noise that her mother had made only the day before, only amplified to a thousand, it rang in her ears. Miyako took one last look behind her. Everything was covered in tar. The windows, the washer and dryer, the way out. She was trapped. So Miyako grabbed the doorknob and turned. Inside, the photos from the hallway lined the walls, carefully arranged much like they had been upstairs. The smell of lilacs overpowered her, causing her eyes to water, and a teenage girl dangled from the rafters, a rope around her neck, a rope covered in tar. Her eyes were clouded over, two hollow orbs that stared at Miyako. Parts of her were cut open, slits in her arms, her legs, her fingertips, and from those slits poured the tar. Above her, the ceiling quivered. Miyako looked up and saw that the tendrils had made their way up her body and were rooted here against the joists, just below Miyako and her mother's rooms. The teenage girl let out a cry, a muffled cry she'd heard so many times before, the tar shuddering as she wailed. Miyako brought her hands to her face and began to sob. I tried to forget about you. We both did. I'm sorry, Yua. I'm sorry. She turned away from her sister, her eyes finding the large rectangular photo in its gaudy frame, a memory captured from a family vacation to Disneyland a few years prior. The faces smiling back at her were ones she barely recognized. Her mother, the woman she used to be, smiling brightly at the camera. Herself, only a child then, donning her favorite Mickey Mouse shirt that she'd outgrown almost right away. And a third girl, Yua a little bigger than Miyako, frowning and wearing the same Mickey Mouse shirt. Everyone looked happy. Everyone was happy. But it was never really like that, was it? A voice inside her asked. For every photo with them all smiling, there'd been a million fights. Behind every photo with them laughing, there'd been a million tears. The phony embraces, the forced touching, the perfectly staged photos. This wall of memories that she'd often pass by, without so much as a glance, was nothing more than a wall of lies. 
They had never been that perfect family their mother had tried to make them be. And Miyako and Yua had never been the perfect daughters that their mother wanted them to be. But the pressure was greatest on Yua, the eldest. She was expected to set an example for her younger sister, to be something that Miyako aspired to be when she grew up. They'd been close, but not close enough for Miyako to realize what was going on in Yua's mind. She moved into the basement and shut herself off from the world, including Miyako. She barely came up, except maybe to eat. And when Miyako went downstairs to try and talk to her, she heard only crying. Then, she was gone. And it was like she had never existed. Their mother saw to that. It's embarrassing. Miyako had heard her mother say at Yua's funeral. How could she do such a thing? Slowly, everything about Yua faded away from Miyako. Her face. Her scent. Every little piece that made her whole. We need to forget her, her mother had said. We need to let her spirit rest. Promise that you'll forget her. And Miyako did, but crossed her fingers behind her back. She heard what sounded like dripping molasses, and looked up to see her sister slithering towards her, pushed by the will of the tar. Yua came to a stop in front of her, hovering just above the floor. I'm sorry, Miyako said through her tears, standing to look Yua in the eyes. I could never forget you. Yua regarded her for a moment, her head cocked unnaturally. Then she opened her arms. Miyako fell into her sister, warm and soft like a big blanket on a cold day. As the tar embraced her back, she turned to the wall of their family photos, now consumed by Yua's essence. The purple lilac painting from the bathroom hung next to the rest of the photos. Miyako smiled. That was Jess Landry's Bury Me in Tar and Twine, as read by Meredith McNeil. Meredith McNeil is an actor and comedian living in Los Angeles. You can find her performing improv or walking seemingly forever with her dog, Presley. Thank you, Meredith. Well, children of the night... The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, We'd appreciate it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. Ratings and reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They help us expose more victims, I mean listeners, to our dark influence. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we dive deeper into darkness with more Tales to Terrify.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 